Well, good morning. If you've been with us at all during this season of fall, you know that we have been looking at the Gospel of Mark together. Each week we have taken a section from the story of Jesus, and today we have one more sermon from Mark before we take a little break. Next week is the beginning of Advent, and that's a time in the church calendar year where we anticipate and long for Jesus to come. Beginning next week, during this sermon time, we will look at the prophet Isaiah and about how we should long and wait for Jesus to appear. But this week, we're still in the Gospel of Mark. And in one sense, this passage is a little weird for us to be looking at this time. See, our passage today is similar to other passages we have looked at in the last few weeks near the end of Jesus' life. Our passage today is actually on the night before Jesus would die on the cross. So in some sense, this passage seems to fit more with Lent, another season in the church calendar, rather than the Sunday before Advent. But in some sense, this is a great passage to prepare us for this upcoming season. This passage is a painful reminder of why Jesus had to come. This passage is a reminder that the little baby Jesus that we're going to sing about in this season grew up to be spit upon, mocked, and beaten. And we need that reminder. Look, I'm all about the sentimentality of Christmas. I love the traditions, the carols, the shepherds watching their flocks by night. But it is a good to be reminded as we enter into this season that Jesus came to suffer and die for you and me. And we need to be reminded, as we will as we hear this passage, that Jesus, our Savior, was all alone at the end of his life. We need to be reminded that our Savior was betrayed and was beaten and was denied, because we can easily forget this, that he did all this for us. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 53, and you could either listen as I read, or you could follow along in your order of worship or in the Bible. Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests... And the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. 
But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again came to Peter and said, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. It's given to us for our good. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you for this chance we have to hear your word, to be reminded of your son, and to reflect upon his last night before he died. Father, wherever we are in this room, whether we are faithfully excited to be here, whether we are apathetic or numb, whether we are bitter or angry, whether we are questioning or doubting, whether we are celebrating or mourning, Father, thank you that you know each one of us and you know our hearts. And I pray that you will use your spirit to remind us of your truth through this story of Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, many years ago now, I was reading a novel, and I was about halfway through this novel, and Pastor Aaron grabbed the book, and he opened it up and put it to the end of the book and decided to read the last line out loud to me. Now, he thought it would be a joke that he's pretending to ruin the story by reading the last line, and he did. You see, what Pastor Aaron did not realize was that the name of a character that he read in the last line, I thought was dead. Halfway through the book, that character was dead, and yet he wasn't, I found out, because of what Pastor Aaron did. Now, he didn't completely ruin the story, but that knowledge definitely affected how I read the second half of that novel. Now, I share that with you, first of all, to just remind you of who Pastor Aaron is. But secondly, and more importantly, I want to illustrate something about this story that we're looking at as a church. You see, the Gospel of Mark that I just read for us is a true story that Mark put together some 30 or 40 years after it happened. Mark, like the other Gospel writers we have in our Bible, is telling a story that he already knows the ending to. And Mark is very intentional in wanting his readers, including us, to see this story before us. Again and again, throughout this whole book, we are given clues and themes pointing to where the story is heading to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mark is not just giving us facts here in this story. He is pointing to something he wants us to understand about Jesus. Mark is revealing the true testimony of who Jesus is. For example, in the account I just read, Mark uses the word witness seven times in various forms. Over and over again in this trial of Jesus, we see the words witness and testimony. In contrast to the false accusations, the testimonies that do not agree, the denial from one of Jesus' closest friends, Mark wants us to see the witness of Jesus as being true and trustworthy. And the irony is that the most blatant, clear testimony of Jesus in our account comes from the lips of the high priest who wants him dead. In the midst of this mockery of a trial, the high priest asks Jesus a question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
In the original language, the Greek, this is more of a statement than a question. It says, you are the Messiah, with a question mark at the end. Now, earlier in this book of Mark, in chapter 8, we heard about the Apostle Peter saying these exact same words. Even though many people miss the truth about Jesus, Mark, from the beginning of his story to the end, wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only this, but the second phrase that the high priest gives him, son of blessed, links very back to the very beginning of this gospel. When Jesus began his ministry, you might remember that at the baptism, a voice from heaven affirms to Jesus and his disciples that he was indeed the son of the blessed, that he was God's beloved son. The same words that were found in the beginning of the gospel are now found here at the end. Jesus is God's beloved son. He is the son of the blessed. He is Christ, the Messiah. Now, why does this matter to us? Why does it matter specifically that the high priest says exactly what Mark has been saying all along? Well, it matters because we cannot just think about Jesus as just being the victim here in this story. It matters that, yes, the trial is a scam for sure. The false accusations and the lies get Jesus beaten and moved towards his death. But Jesus is not just some guy caught in a bad situation. Jesus is God's beloved son. He is the Messiah who is willing to go to the cross for you and me. He knew what he needed to do, and he did it for us. See, Jesus knew that he must suffer and die, and with great resolve, he went and did what he was called to do. We have seen this resolve uh, throughout the last few weeks. Have we looked at him in the upper room with the disciples, in the garden, praying and then going forward in the arrest? And now in the trial, we see Jesus' resolve to go forward. One of the ways we see the determination of Jesus in our account here is in the silence of our Savior. All these false accusations, all these accusatory questions given to Jesus. And Mark records, but he remained silent and made no answer. Now, why does Mark highlight the silence of Jesus? Well, I believe he does this to remind us of who Jesus is and the role that he is playing as a suffering servant. Our Old Testament reading that Brad read for us is from Isaiah about this suffering servant. The prophet Isaiah talks about a servant that is to come, which we now know to be Jesus, who would suffer for our sins. Remember these words we just heard. Isaiah said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like sheep before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That prophecy is about Jesus. And we need to believe that he did this for us. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, God's beloved son, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God suffered for you and me, and he suffered all alone for us. One of the things we keep seeing again and again in these weeks leading up to Jesus' death is the reality of how alone he is at the end. The last few weeks we have seen quite clearly that he was betrayed by one of his associates, that he was forsaken by ten more, that in our account today he was publicly and bitterly renounced by one of his closest friends. And now, at night, before the Sanhedrin and the chief priest, he is all alone with these people seeking to find a way to put him to death. 
Jesus stands alone. And he had to stand alone because only he could fulfill what needed to be done for the sins of the world. Mark wants us to know that none of us can stand before God without Jesus standing alone and dying for our sins. Let me be clear that Mark wants us to see that Jesus alone is the Messiah who can accomplish what needed to be happen on the cross for the sins of the world. That's Mark's point here, that Jesus alone was the Messiah. But this week, as I was reflecting on this passage, I could not help but think about the loneliness of Jesus when it comes to many of us, especially in these next few months. We're about to enter into a very hard time for many people, perhaps for some of you in this room. The season of joy and celebration is often a season of loneliness, pain, and sadness. I have no desire to brush off the pain of this season. There is no quick fix or simple answer to help the darkness and the loneliness and the depression and the suffering that many of you are going through right now. What I do want to say to you, if this is you today, I am sorry. I'm sorry how many of you are probably dreading the next few months. I'm sorry that it looks like everyone has it together and everyone has someone in their life and you feel alone. I'm sorry if this is going to be a hard winter again for you. And again, I don't have a quick fix, nor should I. But what I do have is a reminder in Scripture that maybe, perhaps, we could cling to during this hard time. The writer of Hebrews is describing Jesus as the perfect high priest. And he says these words that I pray can be an encouragement to you and me. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Do you hear those wonderful words? Our Savior sympathizes with us. Our Savior knows what it is like to experience weakness and pain and suffering. Our Savior knows loneliness. Our Savior knows rejection. Our Savior knows people betraying him that he thought were his friends. Our Savior knows what it's like to feel like everyone and everything is against you. Now, this doesn't make our pain go away. This doesn't mean that everything is going to be fine this holiday season as long as you just believe a little more. But as the writer of Hebrews continues on, this is our hope. Because we have a Savior that sympathizes with our weakness, the writer of Hebrews says, let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, may we this season draw near to the throne of grace in the midst of our pain and our loneliness and our suffering. May we realize that Jesus right now is on the throne, that he is at the right hand of the Father, offering grace for you and me in our time of need. Mark reveals this great truth to us in the midst of this painful trial when Jesus finally answers the high priest's question. Are you the Messiah? In verse 62, Jesus answers, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. I want you to think about this. 
Over and over again in Jesus' life, he kept a secret of who he was. At the height of his ministry, when the crowds were following him and everyone wanted him to be king, he demanded people to be silent. When he healed people and he cast out demons, he told them to be quiet. And even when Peter confesses to Christ that he is the Messiah, Jesus commanded him and the disciples to tell no one. But here in this trial, with all the lies and false accusations, here Jesus finally decides to speak up. Are you the Messiah? Yes, I am. Why here? Why now? Because it is only in the midst of the suffering and the rejection with the cross being prepared for his death can he reveal the secret he has been protecting from the very beginning. Only when there is no possibility of anyone trying to rise up and crown him as king does he say, yes, I am the king, and I came to suffer and die. Jesus can claim to be the Messiah now because it is in his suffering and death that we can truly understand what the Messiah came to do. When Jesus is humiliated, when Jesus is spit upon, when Jesus is beaten and betrayed and eventually put on a cross, that is in weakness. He says, yes, I am the Messiah. And it is this weakness do we get glory and power. You see, Jesus claims not only to be Messiah when he answers the high priest's question, but he uses a passage from Daniel 7 with the Son of Man allusion and Psalm 110 to describe what soon will happen to Jesus. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What Jesus is saying is although he is being dishonored by the chief priests and crowds, he soon will be honored by God. Although he is about to be nailed to the cross, he soon will be seated in glory. Jesus is talking about his vindication that will happen after his death, the vindication of his resurrection and his ascension and return to the right place, the hand of God. Jesus is vindicated right now, brothers and sisters. Jesus is in power right now. Jesus is in complete control right now. Beyond what we can see, beyond what we often experience living in a fallen, broken world, we must believe that Jesus is on the throne right now. That Jesus is there for us to turn to and draw near to. This must be our confidence alone. This, that Jesus is on the throne right now, must be our hope. This and this alone. But how often is that not the case? How often do you and I hope in other things rather than Jesus to get us through the hard times? How often do we place our confidence in other things than Jesus on the throne to get us through the day? How often is our confidence in ourselves rather than in God. I think often. And we get a good illustration of the foolishness of resting in our own power in the way Mark tells the story of Peter in contrast with the story of Jesus. Mark is very intentional in the way he tells this story about Peter's denial. Mark in verse 53 and 54 introduces Jesus to the scene. And then we have the story of Jesus' trial. And then in verse 66, Mark picks back up with the story of Peter. Mark wants us to see the dramatic contrast between the faithfulness of Jesus and the unfaithfulness of one of his followers. You see, Jesus retains his integrity, and it cost him his life. 
Peter loses his integrity to save his skin. Peter and Jesus are both charged with something. The charge against Jesus is false. The charge against Peter is actually true. Both Jesus and Peter are, in a sense, before a trial in guards. But Jesus tells the truth, and the consequences are he gets beaten up. Peter denies the truth to avoid the consequences from the guards. We are no different than Peter. None of us are stronger or more able to be faithful than Peter. And Jesus knows this. Just like Jesus, our Savior, knew and predicted that Peter would fail him and deny him, so too does Jesus know every single one of our broken promises we keep making. Just like Jesus knew that all his disciples would run away from him, he knows that we run from him often and run after other things than God to get our satisfaction. This is why Jesus had to die. And our response is to be honest with our failings and to admit our failings and to confess our failings. Our response is to see our weakness and our sin and not ignore it or deny it or attempt to fix it on its own, but acknowledge our sin and turn to Christ alone for forgiveness. Peter got this for sure. At the end of our account, we have him weeping bitterly. And then we know, because we have the letters that he wrote in our Bible, that show he actually got grace and forgiveness far greater than you and I get. I was really reflecting upon this this week as I was picking out my New Testament passage for us to be read. And 1 Peter 4 was the passage I began to look at. And I'd encourage you this week, if you have time, to just read 1 Peter 4 about being tested for your faith. Peter wrote that after he failed miserably at this very thing. You know, what really struck me is that this man, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, is the same Peter who can describe what it means to suffer for Jesus and not be ashamed. These words that Brad read for us earlier on, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter wrote that. Can you imagine the shame and the guilt he must have felt on that night he betrayed his close friend? Peter wrote, let us not be ashamed. And he ran away from Jesus and denied him three times. How can he ever say these words of hope after failing so miserably? Because he gets the gospel. He gets grace. He understands that it's Jesus succeeds when you and I fail. That it is Jesus' faithfulness, not our faithfulness, that can give us the hope to live for God. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news we must grab hold of. This is the reminder that we must have as we leave here, that we will be unfaithful to the day we die, but Christ will be faithful to the end. And that is our hope, and that is the grace that we stand upon. As I close this sermon, let me just read some lines from a song we are about to sing after the passing of the peace. When I read these lines this week, I thought this is the truth that we must grab hold of with our lives. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. 
You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for doing what we could not have done. Thank you for dying for our sins and setting us free to live for you. Father, may we live and rest in that grace alone, not just during this holiday season, not just next year, but the rest of our lives. By grace alone do we stand, and it is the good news that we could cling to. In your holy name, amen.